Well, good morning. It is uh, good to see you guys this morning. Uh, well, we are going to take a, a bit of a detour this morning as we look at a particular concept that we've really been looking at throughout the book of Acts. I want to talk this morning a little bit about baptism, all right? So baptism has been coming up almost every passage in some way or shape or another as we've been walking through our series of the book of Acts this fall. And so I want to take a morning and just dive directly into that concept. So if you guys have ever had any questions about baptism, this is the morning for you. All right. So uh, I'll tell you guys, in thinking of baptism, I was thinking this this week particularly of, uh, I've always kind of had a, a weird fascination with the body's small organs. So take the spleen, for example. All right. So I've always thought to myself, you never really hear much about the spleen, right? There's no real great features on the spleen. There's no even seemingly medicines for the spleen, right? The only time you ever hear about the spleen is if it's about to rupture and kill someone, Right. I wouldn't want to be a spleen, right? They, just ne- they get no good news. There's no good publicity about it. It's just bad news, right? And so, but it's also made me think as it's about to rupture or as people's lives are in jeopardy, they can simply remove the spleen and the body functions as normal seemingly. So I've always thought to myself, if it's just a ticking time bomb that can kill some, but it is unessential to the functioning of the body, why did God ever put the spleen in the body, right? It just feels extraneous to me. It feels redundant. It feels unnecessary to me. I've always been wondering why in the world did God put the spleen in the body, really, if the body can function without it? I think in many ways, I want to make a parallel because as we talk about baptism, I think many of us, the way that we think of the spleen is the way that many of us think of baptism. Not that baptism can kill some, all right? But more of the idea that really, why baptism? Why is it that significant? Why is it that important? If you can continue on the rest of your life having never been baptized, why bother with it at all? I think for many of us, it feels extraneous or it feels redundant to our spiritual lives. And so I really want to talk this morning about baptism as to what it is. Why did God call us to it? Ultimately, who did he call to it? Who is it for? And then lastly, what are the blessings of the results that come from baptism? And so we're going to jump really into that topic this morning, really highlighting a lot of passages throughout the book of Acts that really hit that topic as we kind of address it and come directly right at it. So I really want to begin just simply put most generically the concept of baptism and ask this, what is it? What is baptism? Uh, simply put, I think as we look through the New Testament, we often see the great form of baptism is one of immersion. That as we see baptism performed in the New Testament over and over again, we see individuals who are completely immersed in water. In fact, the very Greek word to baptize, it literally means to submerge or to dip completely underneath and into a liquid. So the very concept definitionally even highlights the form in which we do baptism. Interestingly, even in Mark chapter one, speaking of the baptism that John the Baptist was doing, Mark writes that they were being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River coming up out of the water. That even as they speak of baptism in the gospel of Mark, it's this concept of those that were undergoing something in which they were completely submerged in water. I like even how it said in John chapter three, that John the Baptist also was baptizing in Anon because there was much water there that if there were not much water, then he could not have been baptizing. It's really interesting as you even think about this very concept of baptism. Definitionally, it was the idea of complete submersion in a liquid. And and I think for many of the times as you look through the new Testament, God will call the church to perform things, to carry out functions. And yet when it comes to the way that those functions are carried out, often God will give the, uh, the church great flexibility, great freedom as to the forms by which we carry out those functions. There are many different ways to do many of the things that God would call us to take worship. For example, there's all kinds of ways to worship. Of course, there's been great controversies over how one worships, but there's great flexibility in how you and I go about the worship of God. It's interesting, at least in terms of this concept of baptism that the early church has been called to, it's interesting that that really the form really is very greatly tied into the function. That to understand the function of baptism and what baptism is meant to be and what we're meant to understand from it is really tied into the form itself. 
It's not that sprinkling or, or, or throwing splashing water on people uh, is unbiblical, but it does begin to miss the point ultimately of what God was intending in baptism. It's not just that definitionally the idea was to completely submerge into a liquid, but a concept practically speaking as it was carried out in the, in the early church period of time outside of the church was this, that a cloth or a piece of fabric would be completely submerged into a dye. And then it would come up out of that dye completely changed because it would now be colored to match and to identify with that dye. It's not just that the cloth was immersed into water and would raise out of the water wet upon which it would dry and go back to the original shape that it was in, but it would be uh, submerged into a dye upon which it would be removed out of that dye and now would be forever marked by the dye upon which it was baptized into, so to speak. Really, the great function of baptism, what baptism is meant to be about, is really not just by a form of immersion, but by function, it's meant to be one of identification. What baptism is meant to be is a means by which one can identify themselves with Jesus Christ. It's all about identification. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That for Paul, as he spoke of and thought of this concept of baptism, it was all about identification. It was all about identification. It was about an identification of a union with Jesus in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. Not just of a union with Jesus, but even more, it was a picture of a death to an old life and a resurrection to a new life. It was a death to an old life and a resurrection to a new life. And so Paul will say, even in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That ultimately, as Paul thought of the identification that is pictured in baptism, it was all about not just a union with Christ and his death and his resurrection, but by nature of that union, it was also a picture really of a death to an old life and a resurrection to a new life, a whole new kind of lifestyle, an exchange of lifestyles. In fact, uh, I had an incredible opportunity a few years ago to be in North Africa in our missions partnership there. I got to see the uh, ruins of an early church. And, and in fact, the, even uh, some of the, the structure of their early church's baptistry. And in it, what you had was you had stairs that descended uh, into the, the earth, so to speak, where they had a, a baptistry. And then they had stairs that would descend up out of and back up to uh, the ground level. And what happened, historically speaking and practically speaking, is they did baptisms in the early church was this. You had, they would do it by gender, uh, first guys, then girls. And what would happen is you'd have uh, one group who would uh, enter into the stairwell going down. They would shed their old clothes. They'd go into the waters completely naked. And as they'd come up out of the waters, they'd take on a new robe. And the concept and the, and the sense was this, that they would in a sense be shedding off an old lifestyle, off an old identity. They'd go into the waters and they'd emerge out of the waters with a new robe or new clothes or a new identity and a new lifestyle. That what baptism was, was an identification with Jesus but also in an exchange of a lifestyle. It was a, a, a burial or a washing of an old lifestyle and a resurrection of a new lifestyle. It was meant to be an identification with Jesus to the world that was watching. It's fascinating. I think many of us, as we look through the book of Acts, I'm going to give you guys a series of passages this morning as the book of Acts will speak of baptism. What we see over and over again from the book of Acts is that one's reception of uh, the gospel and belief in Jesus Christ was quickly wedded with baptism. They believed and boom, they were baptized. It was hand in hand almost with one another. It was almost an immediate process upon which point they would believe in Jesus then they would almost immediately be baptized. And so these things would go hand in hand with one another. So much so that really as they spoke of their faith and they spoke of their relationship with Jesus, they could often refer to their baptism as a sign of that relationship. 
The moment they trusted Christ, they were baptized. And so their baptism almost became a sign for their own relationship with Jesus in much the same way that wedding ring works. If you've ever uh, had an opportunity and and thought about marriage, really uh, the wedding ring does not make me married, right? (laughs) But the wedding ring really is a sign. It is a symbol of a relationship I have that I've been committed to. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my favorite stories from a friend that I got to serve overseas with was when he was at A&M as an incoming freshman, he went to a, a local parachurch organization's meeting on campus and he chose to hit on a girl that he would later on realize was married, all right? He, he wasn't used to looking for the ring, all right? And he would later realize, and the funny part of the story was the, the woman that he would hit on was the wife to the man that would eventually mentor and disciple him through college, all right? He hit on his wife, all right? Because he didn't know to look for the ring, all right? So you guys aren't used to that reality because most of the times as you guys walk through college, most everyone is still single or unengaged until the senior year per se, right? But the wedding ring does not make me married, Right? But it is a great representation. It is a sign of a relationship that I already have. It is an outward symbol of that inner commitment and that inner relationship. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is an outward symbol of an already existing inner relationship, an inner uh, step of faith in which I've committed and believed in Jesus. Baptism is simply an external symbol for that inner reality and that inner already existing relationship in much the same way that the wedding ring is of marriage. It's fascinating, though, because really, as we look through the book of Acts, those things will become so wedded belief and baptism that some will begin to argue that maybe baptism causes belief or that baptism causes salvation. And so we'll talk a little bit more extensively about this, but I want to hit you guys with the very concept that I think for the early church, these things were so wedded together. And yet for you and I, really, the moment someone trusts Christ and then the moment they're baptized, sometimes it's years and years later, we practice this ordinance of the church in a very different way than the early church practiced it which really allows us to ask a series of questions and have a a series of issues that present that are so different than anything the early church processed or dealt with. I don't think in any way that baptism caused salvation or baptism caused the forgiveness of sins. It was simply an external symbol of an already existing relationship. Let me give you guys another analogy for it. I I think baptism is a little bit like uh, a dating relationship going Facebook official, all right? So hang with me here, if you will. Uh, imagine, uh, you ladies, imagine a guy ask you out to coffee, and then you get back from coffee, and you get to your computer, and all of a sudden there's already a request within Facebook because he wants to declare to the world that you guys are in a relationship, right? How would you guys feel? Whoa, right? <laughs> we had coffee. We are definitely not in a relationship. I don't know what this is, but it's definitely not that, and I'm definitely not ready to declare anything to the world, right? No, no, no. Let's back the train up, right? Uh, that's a bit presumptuous to declare to the world that we have a relationship because we, we had coffee, right? We didn't have a relationship, right? Let's, let's slow down, all right? But let me go to the other end of the spectrum, all right? And imagine a couple's been dating for months and months and months, right? And there's pictures plastered all over Facebook, clearly that they're in a relationship, right? Uh, there's, there's the picture of the hug, but it's not the hug of friends, but it's the hug of like, we're together. It's like completely wrapped around the hip, right? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that relationship. You've seen that picture, right? It's clearly that they're in a relationship. But why have they not declared to the world that they're officially in a relationship? Why have they not gone Facebook official, right? Maybe that's just dying down. Maybe that's slowing down. But you begin to wonder, are, are they shamed? Shamed of this relationship? Or are they just not really wanting to declare it publicly to the world? What's the deal, right? I think in terms of baptism, I think if baptism is seen as something that presumes or, or establishes a relationship, then it's presumptuous, right? Baptism does not establish a relationship. But if baptism is delayed upon which we've not yet taken a step to declare to the world that we are with Jesus Christ, then the question becomes, why not? 
If baptism has been delayed, and I'll tell you guys, I made a decision to trust Christ in junior high. It would be about a year and a half later that I would be baptized. And in that time, I was taking time to consider, hey, what is this relationship I've entered into? I wasn't really yet ready to say to the world, hey, I am with Jesus and I'm going to walk with Jesus. And so there, there, for many of us, is this great lag between when we trust Christ and when we enter into baptism. And to put it on us too early is to presume on a relationship that may not exist But to delay it too long is to say something to the world in which we're basically saying to the world, we're not really ready to identify with Jesus. This is kind of a personal thing I have going, but I'm not really ready to take it public yet. Not really ready to declare it to the world on Facebook that, hey, I'm in a relationship, right? That's what baptism essentially is. It is a public declaration to the world that I am in an already existing relationship with Jesus Christ. And a public declaration to the world as well that I'm going to live and I'm going to walk and I'm going to embody a lifestyle like Jesus has called me to. Essentially, that is what baptism is. It is by form immersion, but it is by function identification. It is a statement publicly to the world of, hey, I am Jesus's. I know him, I love him, and I'm going to walk with him, and I'm not afraid to declare that to the world. That is what baptism is. So understanding the purpose of baptism, it's much more easier to wrestle with the participants of baptism. Who is it for? Ultimately, I'm going to argue that it is for believers only, all right? Um, and you can cl- clearly conclude that from, what the, from the direction I'm going. But I think baptism is something that is for believers only. And I want to establish that and show you guys that practically just from the book of Acts. I'm actually going to start toward the back of the, the book of Acts and move toward the front of the book of Acts. And I want to show you guys the pattern of baptism as it was practiced in the early church. I'm going to begin with you guys in Acts chapter 16, as Paul is uh, declaring and sharing with the the Philippian jailer, and he says this, that they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And therefore, then he took them that very hour of the night and immediately he was baptized. Acts 16 is the story of the Philippian jailer who uh, sees an amazing work happen and then he hears the message of the gospel, he believes, and then he's baptized. He hears the message, he responds to the message, and then in the aftermath of that, quickly and immediately, though, he's baptized, right? You see, even in the book of Acts, these things occur hand in hand, and yet the order is belief in the baptism. Acts chapter 16, just a little earlier, a woman named Lydia, verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 14 to 15. A woman named Lydia was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, the story goes on of what she does and how she opens her home to the church. So again, Lydia hears the message, she responds in her heart, and then she's dunked and she's baptized, all right? Belief and then baptism. Give you guys a third passage. Comes in uh, Acts chapter 8. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Acts chapter 8, yet another passage in which we begin to see that the order of things is belief and then baptism. I flew past one other slide I want you guys to see. It comes in Acts chapter 10. Really interesting uh, passage in the book of Acts. Uh, this is with uh, Peter and, the, and Cornelius uh, in, in Acts chapter 10. It says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to, to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. In Acts 10, is speaking of a group of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have already received the Holy Spirit, and yet they've not been baptized. <laughs> And so the passage comes along and Peter says, hey, they've received the Holy Spirit. So it's absolutely fitting that they would be baptized. All right. So in Acts 10, you have belief, you have the spirit coming upon them, and then you have baptism. All right. So incredible pattern that we're seeing over and over again of baptism and then belief. But let me ask you guys a different question. And that's, are there exceptions? If the pattern we see over and over again through the book of Acts is that a group of people or an individual hears the message of the gospel, they respond in faith, they enter into a relationship with Jesus, and then they're baptized, are there exceptions? 
Are there passages that would make us begin to wonder something contrary? Because there are those that will practice baptism and believe in a baptism that is a different kind. And they'll believe it on the basis of some other passages, particularly and specifically Ephesians or Acts chapter two, verses verse 38. Early in the book of Acts, Peter uh, speaking to the, uh, those gathered at the day of Pentecost and, and verse 38 says this, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 is a particularly perplexing passage because in Acts 2 verse 38, it seems like the order of these events is enmeshed in a way that's really hard to pull apart. Remember, we've been looking at these passages moving backwards to the very beginning of the book of Acts. And we've seen that individuals are hearing the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died and that he's resurrected, that he's king, that he's Lord over all. And they've responded in faith that he's offering forgiveness of sins. And then the spirit comes upon them and then they're baptized. And yet in Acts chapter two, completely different kind of statement. And it seems that this is running contrary to the other passages that we've seen. As Peter says, hey, to an audience that is crushed and that is responsive to the message that he's been preaching about Jesus, about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. Notice as they say to him earlier in that passage, what then shall we do? Here's what he says to them. Repent, change your mind in your action as regards Jesus Christ and be baptized. And the result of that is that you will receive the forgiveness of sins. And then later you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church of Christ and others that will practice and believe differently about baptism will run to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and they will build a whole system of thought on Acts 2, verse 38. Because it does seem to sound as if what Peter is saying to them is this, repent, change your mind, believe, be baptized, and then you get forgiveness of sins. And so is baptism required to enter into a relationship with Jesus? I don't think so. I think Acts chapter 2, verse 38 is a bit of a perplexing passage that is a bit of an outlier. In fact, if you guys are in our small groups this semester, as we're walking through the book of first Peter this very week, we're going to get into first Peter chapter three as in terms of another passage that is a bit perplexing. And Peter will say in chapter three, verse 21 and baptism now saves you. So here's the question. First Peter three, 21 acts two, verse 38, a couple of passages that are incredibly difficult to interpret become the very foundation for the church of Christ and for others. And maybe you came in from that kind of background or from denominations that practiced not a baptism for believers, but a baptism for others, maybe babies, maybe other people uh, before they even got into a relationship with Jesus. And this is where they're going. This is where they're running to. All right. Again, I'll, I'll tell you guys, I think in Acts chapter two, verse 38, I think you have a bit of a different thing going on in that in Acts two, verse 38, I think belief and baptism are so wedded together that Peter doesn't necessarily pull them apart. I don't think Peter necessarily has in his mind that in order to get the forgiveness of sins, you have to be baptized. In fact, in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 17, I slid over it a little earlier ago, but incredibly powerful passages. Paul will say, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul's going to make that distinction far more clearly in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 17, as he says, I did not come to baptize, but I came to preach the gospel so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Baptism is not required to get into a relationship with Jesus. Baptism does not save you from hell and the penalty of your sins. Baptism does something different. I'm trying to express that over and over again, because ultimately I think Acts 2 verse 38, 1 Peter 3, 21 can be interpreted and understood differently. And they are a bit of outlier passages. All right. The great thrust, the great emphasis, the great repetition we see throughout the scriptures of the New Testament is this, that baptism is simply an external symbol for a relationship that you already have with Jesus as you profess that and communicate that to the world. These are a bit of outliers, all right? 
And when it is a dangerous place to build a whole system of practice and a system of theology on outlier passages. So for example, some of you guys have had the opportunity to meet my little dog, Millie. All right. Uh, if you guys were in uh, growth groups earlier this semester, I showed you guys this picture. This is our dog. All right. Um, Millie is not a looker. All right. Her eyes kind of go to the side. All right. She has a gr- great personality though. All right. Um, but Millie, Millie is a Boston Terrier, right? And if you guys know anything about Boston Terriers, they are almost always 99% of the time black and white, all right? And yet, Millie, precious little girl as she is, is a genetic marvel. She's brown and white, all right? She is an outlier in the species of Boston Terriers, all right? So to conclude, though, that Boston Terriers are brown and white is to build a system and an understanding of what Boston Terriers are off of one outlier genetic marvel that she is, all right? So here's my point. Acts 2, verse 38, 1 Peter 3, 21, difficult passages, but they are outliers that you ought not put too much of your system and your understanding on when there are far many more clear passages to grasp and to understand, all right? I think baptism is simply an external symbol for an already existing relationship that you are now professing to the world that, hey, you know Jesus and that you're walking with Jesus. That is what baptism is, all right? So lastly, some will, I want to hit one, one last question that many have. What about babies? Simply put, if baptism is simply, again, an external symbol for a relationship that already exists that one has with Jesus, then it is not appropriate to baptize babies, all right? Why? Because babies cannot have a relationship with Jesus. They cannot have a faith that they've already exercised in that relationship. And so it's inappropriate, I think, to baptize babies. It's interesting, even the Catholic Church that will practice this, they will say this about why they do that. The faith which infants lack is replaced by the faith of the church. That in baptism of babies in the Catholic church, ultimately what they're doing is this, is that they're expressing and believing that the faith of the church can be put upon the infant and by their baptism, they will then be led to faith. But again, that is contrary to the pattern we see over and over again throughout the New Testament of how baptism is practiced, when it is practiced and for whom it is practiced. That's not what we see through the New Testament. In fact, I think ultimately what's happening for the Catholic Church and for many denominations that will practice that is a confusion and a too strong of a parallel that is made in New Testament baptism with Old Testament circumcision. In the Old Testament, as God called the nation of Israel to circumcise babies on the seventh or eighth day, that ultimately what they were doing was expressing in the circumcision of their child their own faith that God would fulfill the promises that he had made and extended to the nation of Israel as they circumcised the child. The circumcision of a child was not necessarily reflective of their own faith. Their own circumcision was reflective of their parents' faith. And so as the parents circumcised their children, they were expressing and demonstrating their faith in their own already existing relationship in what God would do and what God had promised. But for the babies that were circumcised, it had nothing to do with their faith. It had nothing to do with their belief. It had nothing to do with, even with their own relationship with God because they were a baby. And so to parallel Old Testament circumcision onto New Testament baptism is a parallel that is inappropriate and unnecessary. But that really is the background. That is much of the thinking as to why many will do that in terms of denominations or backgrounds or even some churches that you may have come from. I think that is a lot of the thinking as to why they're doing that. So I don't think it is for babies. But then if it's not for babies, uh, it's really fascinating. As you look through the Reformation, four to 5,000 Anabaptists would be killed for their belief in believer baptism, right? Martin Luther and the Reformation would push back on the Catholic church and say that you and I are saved on the basis of faith alone in what Jesus alone has done for us. We cannot enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of our belief and on the basis of our works. You cannot merit the approval of God. And so Luther said, no, the only thing that can merit the approval of God is simply faith in what Jesus has done. 
There's nothing that you can do in and of yourselves to merit the approval of God. And so Luther said of the Reformation, huge pivotal mark in all of church history, it is by faith alone that we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not faith and works. It is not faith and baptism either. And yet, four to 5,000 Anabaptists in that period of time would say, we believe that baptism is for believers only, and four to 5,000 of them would be executed by drowning. Ironic and tragic, right? Uh, They would be drowned by the very theology they were holding to as they, in a sense, would be baptized, and yet they wouldn't be pulled up under. Horrible, horrific moment for the life of the church. And yet, these men and women believe that this was so essential, so huge, because it's about the very nature of the gospel. And what baptism is is simply, again, an external symbol of the good news that one has believed and the relationship that they've entered into. So I want to ask kind of and wrap up really then on this. If it's just a symbol, then why do it? If it doesn't actually make you saved, if it doesn't actually enter into you into a relationship with Jesus, then why worry about it? Why bother with it? Why do it at all? What blessing results from it at all? Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 28 in the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you back in the great commission, Matthew 28, uh, 19 to 20 is absolutely clear. This is a command of Jesus. This is a command of Jesus for those that do know Jesus. This is a command of Jesus for those that are making Jesus known. This is part of what Jesus has commanded. It's part of what the church is to call men and women to that have entered into a relationship with Jesus. This is simply put a command. There are a lot of commands in the, old, in the New Testament that I don't necessarily always grasp or understand. And yet, whether we grasp it or understand it, this is something that we've been called to if we know Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of that, uh, like any command uh, that we've been called to, obedience brings a blessing. James chapter 1, verse 22 and 25 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves, but one who looks intently at the perfect law and abides by it. This man will be blessed in what he does. James will say, as you listen to the commands that God will provide you, if you listen and walk away and don't follow through, you're like a man who looks in a mirror and just simply forgot, forgets who you are, forgets what God has said. But if you're one who sees, hears, and responds and does, then you're blessed. Baptism, like any other command that we respond to in obedience, brings a blessing. The response in obedience to baptism brings a blessing. But what is that blessing? Particularly, I think we get a really interesting passage in in Hebrews chapter 13, where the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of individuals who know Jesus Christ. And yet in the midst of their culture, in the midst of their day and time, they're being persecuted. And the great temptation for them was to cower and to shrink back from Jesus Christ. To not want to publicly proclaim that I know Jesus and that I'm walking with Jesus because it came at such a great cost. And so the, book, the writer of Hebrews says to them over and over again, do not shrink back. Do not pull back from a public declaration that you know and that you're going to walk with Jesus. So he says to them in Hebrews chapter 13, therefore Jesus also through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The writer of Hebrews says this to an audience that was being persecuted, that was struggling with whether they should step up and proclaim their faith loudly and boldly to a culture that was persecuting them and was ridiculing them. He says, hey, this is exactly what Jesus has done for you. And therefore, your identification with him will require you to step out of culture at times, to step out of the, the, and go against the grain of culture, and at times to receive reproach, to receive ridicule. And that is the very path that Jesus has walked, and that's the path that Jesus calls you to. And to understand that he's calling you even to a kingdom that is coming realizes that you can endure persecution in the present because of what is coming in the future. 
And that our unwillingness to identify with Jesus publicly as we shrink back so that we can blend into this culture is a misunderstanding of the world that we're living in because this is not all that God has for us. This is momentary and this is temporal and God is calling you and I to something even greater. And ultimately, I think as we think of baptism, I think many of us have a misunderstanding of what it is. But I think far more largely, I think at even a larger abstract level, I think many of us struggle with a willingness to identify ourselves with Jesus at the very most public of our spheres of our life. Our faith and our relationship with Jesus is something personal, right? I have personal little quiet times. I, I read the Bible in the morning when no one's around, right? But in terms of my school life, in terms of my work life one day, in terms of my marriage one day, the relationships and the friendships I have, my faith is just private. It's just personal, it doesn't necessarily need to go public. And I think what baptism is all about is a, is a statement to the church and to the believer in Jesus Christ that no, your, your faith is not a private personal affair. It is something that is always meant to go public. It is something that is always meant to call you to declare to the world that you know Jesus and that you're going to walk with Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, even as you think about your own relationship with Jesus, do you have one? Have you yet entered that spot in time where you've realized that Jesus died for you, that he was resurrected to show that he had the power over sin and over death and that you had an opportunity, therefore, to be reconciled to him for the first time ever? For, for you this morning, this, this morning's not at all about baptism. For you this morning, it may all be about entering into a relationship with him for the first time. Not, not something you get into because of baptism. Not something you can get into because of anything you can do because you can't do anything to merit the approval of God that is only on the basis of what Jesus has done for you that you can enter into a relationship with him. If you have entered into a relationship with him, let me just ask you, have you yet had that moment where you've actually been baptized? Have you ever had that moment yet where you've entered into and been able to proclaim to the world that was watching that you've been united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, that your old life has been buried, that your new life has been resurrected, and that you're going to declare to the world that you know Jesus and that you want to walk with Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, I want to encourage you to consider that responsive obedience to the call of God. That it is not an extraneous spleen, if you will, but it's an incredibly necessary part of a spiritual walk as you know Jesus and as you walk with Jesus. That it is not extraneous at all, but it's very much what God has called you to, very much what God is pushing and urging you to consider and to follow through on. It's very much what he's called you to consider. In fact, uh, one of the opportunities I want to extend to you guys, if you're thinking about this, is that at our college retreat coming up in a few weeks, October 26th, 28th, one of the things we do every retreat in the fall, I think it's one of the coolest moments of retreat, is that we will do baptisms at retreat. And so if you've not yet been baptized, if it's something that you want to consider, it's something that you want to follow through on, great moment, great spot to do that. It's, I think one of the coolest parts of retreat. And so if you've not done that, but that's something that you want to consider, let me challenge you to simply email Rachel Presley at grace Bible.org. Actually, it's now Rachel O'Brien. All right. Either email will go to her now that she's married. All right. But again, great opportunity to do that. If you're not going to be with us on retreat coming up December 2nd in the main service here at Southwood, another opportunity as we do baptisms in the main service. And if you want to follow through in the main service, simply email Pam Coke at grace-bible.org or just email me and I can get you connected. But, but I want you guys to know the opportunities that exist to, to follow through if this is something that you feel the Lord's urging you to consider. And let me, let me just say lastly, I think baptism is a, an event that you have an opportunity to declare publicly that you know Jesus and that you're going to walk with Jesus. And yet, I think you have an opportunity like that every day that you walk through college, every day that you walk in your dorm, every day that you walk through college, through classrooms, through wherever that the Lord will guide your path. And the question is, will you be bold for Jesus Christ? Or will you be one that will shrink back, wanting to blend in, wanting to not upset people, not wanting to disgrace or be persecuted or be reviled or pushed back on? I think you have that decision to make every single day. 
And the temptation is to say, no, no, this, this thing with Jesus is just, just my deal. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't want to create any kind of awkwardness in relationships. And yet one of the things I want you guys to hear that baptism, I think, says to you and I is this, that your relationship with Jesus is always meant to go public. It is never meant to be shut down and hidden under a bushel, but your light is meant to shine and shine brightly in the community and the campus that you're a part of. And so don't stuff it. Don't pull back, don't shrink back, but have the kind of confidence that says, hey, no matter what will come in this day and time, I know that Jesus is preparing another day and time to come and that my faithfulness to him, he can use. Even if it comes at my ridicule, even if it comes at my expense, I know it's something that he can use for his greater glory and his greater purposes. We have that opportunity in baptism as a one-time deal, but we also have that opportunity and that decision to make every single day. So let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks for what you've done. I thank you for what you've done on the cross, that we've seen that you've been crucified, crushed for our iniquities, crushed for our sins so that we could have life. And I thank you that baptism shows us that we can enter into a relationship with you, not on the basis of our works, but as a symbol of what you've done. For all those of us who have not entered into that, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to respond to you in obedience, to respond to you in faith. And Father, I pray even as we respond with the rest of this morning in worship, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of what you've done. And I pray that you would move us to a place where we'd be willing to stand up for you to declare our relationship and our passion and our boldness for you to the watching world and that we would not shrink back. 